Have you ever had the thrilling feeling of being chosen out of a big crowd? <laughs> Have you ever felt that, being chosen out of a crowd before? Maybe you've been chosen by a Jumbotron camera operator at a hockey game. Have you ever had that happen to you? You see yourself up on the screen and you go crazy? Maybe they chose you because they saw you sporting your favorite team's colors or how excited you were about how your team was doing or maybe how wildly you were dancing to Cotton Eye Joe. <laughs> or maybe they saw you with someone, a friend there or a partner and they said, oh, I want to get them on the kiss cam. <laughs> I want to get them smooching. Maybe you haven't gotten that before. Maybe you've been chosen as a volunteer. Maybe you've been chosen as a volunteer at some event where someone up on the stage says, hey, I need a volunteer, anyone? And you put your hand up and they select you out of the crowd. Maybe a magician or a juggler has called you up to help with a trick. <laughs> Such a cruel trick. <laughs> I need a volunteer. And then they bring you up and I'm going to now juggle these knives or flaming torches above your head. <laughs> you ever feel like that's kind of like what volunteering in church is? <laughs> Or maybe you were chosen to participate in some kind of competition or game up on stage with someone else. See how many marshmallows you can fit in your mouth and still say Fluffy Bunny. <laughs> or maybe like Michael, you have been embarrassed by your pastor pulling you up on stage before. <laughs> on the other side of things, maybe you've never been chosen out of, out of a crowd. Maybe you're the type that dreads the idea of being selected at all or being singled out. When someone asks for volunteers, you're hoping that you're sitting behind someone who's tall. Or you start pointing at whoever you're with. Pick them, pick them, not me. It's dangerous. Usually when people are looking for volunteers and you raise your hand, they want you. <laughs> but if we are ever chosen out of a crowd, if, we, if we've had that feeling before, there's something special about that, isn't there? We feel privileged or lucky or popular, maybe just a bit famous. Or even if you don't want to be chosen, it's still a special feeling. You feel cursed or embarrassed. <laughs> but you still feel special in a way that you were chosen over everyone else, right? Did you know that Jesus once chose people out from a crowd? He did. But he didn't do so in order to get volunteers for some magic act or to make them feel special or privileged at all. He chose people out of a crowd in order to call them for a special mission. He had a job he wanted them to do. And he didn't pick them because they were exceptional people at all. They weren't. He chose them in order to make them exceptional people who he could use. Whom he could use to change the world forever. Please turn with me in your Bibles if you have your Bibles to Luke chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's some in the pew in front of you, and this passage will be on page 862. We'll bring you to Luke chapter 6, and we'll be beginning in verse 12 today. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of Luke together, seeing how Jesus lived his life on earth and what it means for us to follow him in this day with our lives. It's been a great journey so far, and so we're continuing that today. As you find this passage, though, I'd like to ask you to join with me and bow your hearts and minds in prayer with me. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word today, we're reminded, as the song sang, that 
we forfeit so much peace and so much grace from you because we just don't bring it to you in prayer. And so we seek to do that right now. We bring our hearts to you. We want to commune with you, to worship you. And I pray as we look into your word that you would be speaking back into our hearts through your spirit, that you would be changing us and forming us into the people you want us to be. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So last Sunday, if you weren't with us, we saw the story of when Jesus healed the man's withered hand on the Sabbath. And the religious leaders of the day thought that Jesus was breaking their cherished Sabbath law. They, Even though Jesus was showing love to this man, and so really he was fulfilling the law in its most perfect way. And these religious leaders were ironically the ones breaking the law because they were refusing to show love. When Jesus exposed their lack of love, Luke says in verse 11, I believe, that they were filled with fury. And they started to conspire and to plot about how they could destroy Jesus. I review this because it was during this time, during this era, that Jesus chose some apostles. It says this in verse 12. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James, and John, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. You ask, now, what's an apostle? We'll get to that in a minute. But first, I want you to focus on the very first three words of that passage. It says, in these days. In these days, this is what happened. So this was right in the middle of Jesus becoming more and more controversial. People were divided over him. They either loved him or they hated him. And the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, we just saw, they were getting bloodthirsty. No matter how popular Jesus was in some circles, people had to know that Opposition was just exponentially increasing every day. Think about that, though. As Jesus chose men to follow him, these men had to know that they were asking for trouble by even associating with Jesus, by being around him. You normally would not want to befriend a man who lots of people want dead, would you? But Jesus was special. There was something about him that made his disciples willing to walk away from everything for him. Now, we've already met a few of these guys earlier in Luke. We met Simon Peter, the fisherman, a couple times in chapters 4 and 5. We also saw the brothers James and John during that time. And these three men, Luke 5 verse 11 says, they left everything and followed Jesus. Then we saw Jesus call the tax collector, Levi, also in chapter 5. And Levi also left everything, rose, and followed Jesus. Now you might wonder, well, wait, okay, so some of these guys were already following Jesus. So why do we come to this passage today in Luke 6, and Luke says that Jesus called them? Is this some kind of duplicate account or contradiction? No, see... These men were already following Jesus as disciples, people who learned from Jesus and followed Jesus. Luke even confirms that these men were already disciples here. In verse 13, 
It said, and when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. So they were already disciples, but they were not yet apostles. And there was a difference. Here's the thing. Jesus had many, many disciples. Everywhere he went, huge crowds would gather to see him. And a large number of people would have in that crowd would have been considered disciples. They were following him. They were learning from him. They loved him. They believed in him. They followed his teachings. And I think there's a good illustration from our culture today, maybe to get you a bit of a comparison from perhaps an unlikely source. One thing that surprises me to no end is the mind-boggling popularity of Justin Bieber. <laughs> I don't get it. <laughs> but over the past few years... This teenage pop singer's fame has exploded. So has his fan base. The, it's always increasing number of primarily teenage girls, right? For example, did you know that Justin Bieber has over 33 million followers on Twitter? That's just crazy. And some of you don't even know what Twitter is. Let me just tell you, it's crazy, okay? Fans of Justin Bieber are, in a word, crazy about him and about his music. They are blindly and unquestionably and rapidly supportive of him. A nickname has even been coined for his fan base. You might know it. They're called the Beliebers. <laughs> okay. Now, if you're someone who doesn't care for Justin Bieber's music, let me warn you. Do not tell a believer that you don't like their Justin. <laughs> Unless you're willing to fend off a raging torrent of teenage estrogen. <laughs> They're crazy. Now, my point in this is to say that believers are basically disciples. Okay, They are disciples of Justin Bieber. They're followers of him. They love him. They're excited about him. They hang on every word he says. Or he sings. And you could say here in the, the crowds of disciples that followed Jesus were somewhat like these fans of Justin Bieber. They loved Jesus. They followed him everywhere. They were excited about what he could do. They hung on every word he said. They were so into Jesus. But here's the thing. Jesus wanted something more than just disciples. He was happy with the crowds that followed him, but he wanted more than that. Now, he didn't need anyone's help. But Jesus knew that coming soon, that, that people's bloodthirst that was happening would turn into bloodshed. It would turn into his bloodshed. And even though he'd rise from the dead, he'd be leaving earth soon. He knew this. And once he left earth, he wanted some of his disciples to carry on his work. And so, Jesus chose a select few of his disciples out of the crowd that he would mentor. This was a strategic move to ensure the continuation of his ministry one day. He would train them in his ways. He'd teach them intimately. He'd disciple them intently. He'd take them really to another level of discipleship. And they would become his apostles. Apostle comes directly from a Greek word, apostolos, which means to send out. Okay? So, uh, apostle literally means a sent one. 
But apostles were more than just messengers who were sent. The title conveyed something more. It conveyed the idea of an ambassador or a delegate or an official representative. There is a parallel term in Aramaic, the common language in Israel in Jesus' day, and these were called shaliahs. And a shaliah was an official delegate from the Sanhedrin, the ruling council in Jerusalem. The Sanhedrin was kind of like a Jewish parliament, although underneath Rome's power. And if the Sanhedrin wanted to deliver a message to someone, or they wanted to send someone to talk to someone, they would send out a shaliah. And a shaliah spoke on behalf of the Sanhedrin. He spoke with their authority. He could settle legal or religious disputes on behalf of the Sanhedrin, and people had to respect them as if they were the council themselves. After all, he represented them, and he he delivered their messages. And this office of Shaliah was very well known in Jesus' day. People knew who they were. And as Jesus appointed these apostles, he was telling people, these are my Shaliah. He trusted them to represent him, to speak with his authority, and to deliver his gospel. And while they weren't really sent out yet, they were destined to be. And they'd become officially his apostles. So Jesus took his disciples, chose a specific few out of the crowd, and made them apostles. But we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. I want to get back to this passage And I want you to notice some things in this passage about this very intriguing selection of men. These observations will make up the three points in your notes today. And the first one is this, that Jesus prayed before he chose his apostles. Before he made his choices out of the crowd, Jesus spent significant time in prayer. He prayed before he chose his apostles. We see this in verse 12. It says, In these days he went out to the mountain to pray, And all night he continued in prayer to God. Now, if Jesus went out to this mountain before nightfall and continued to pray until dawn came, it meant that he probably spent a solid ten straight hours in prayer. That's intense prayer. Many of us can't even sleep for ten hours. Or we get too tired to work for ten hours. But Jesus here is praying that. Now, did Jesus not need to sleep? Well, we believe Jesus did need to sleep. As a man, he needed to sleep. But apparently, he didn't need to sleep this night. The Spirit must have sustained him through the night. Or probably more accurately, he felt the need to pray was greater than the need to sleep. We've already seen repeatedly in Luke of how much of a priority prayer was for Jesus. Prayer was regular and frequently a habit for him. And the intensity that we see here of him praying all through the night shows how important this was to him. We who are his followers today should also recognize that prayer needs to be one of our top priorities, if not the top priority. Sadly, I think prayer is often probably about the hundredth priority for most of us. Everything else comes into life and crowds that out. It's the first thing to go. We only think to pray at meal times or as we send our kids to bed or in dire situations that we find ourselves in. 
And all the other times in life, prayer just, we don't even think about it. It goes ignored, and I think that is very much to our detriment. We should ask the question, though, as we read this, why did Jesus need to pray here? Why did Jesus pray? Why would Luke feel the need to mention this little tidbit that Jesus went off to the mountain and prayed all night? Why did he do that? The way that Luke includes this in this passage seems to say that it had something to do with what came after it. It had something to do with him choosing his apostles. But beyond that, really, we don't know why he prayed here. We can only speculate. We Perhaps in his human nature, Jesus wanted guidance or clarity in his decision-making. Perhaps he did this as an example for his disciples. More likely, I believe, he was simply communicating with his Heavenly Father. We see it time and time again. Jesus was dependent on his Father while he was on earth and dependent on the Spirit, and he was probably communicating with him in an intimate way. And and in his humanity, he needed the peace and the strength and the fellowship that prayer gave him. Jesus often prayed before crucial and especially significant occasions in his life. The best example, of course, is his praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Before some big signpost in his life, he would pray. In this passage, Jesus' ministry was about to make a big transition. It was transition from being primarily a ministry to the masses to especially being ministry to a few to the twelve, to a small group. And this was a major signpost in Jesus' ministry. It was a significant event. And so we see Jesus pray, for whatever reason, before he chose his apostles. After he prayed all night long, we see Jesus was ready to choose his disciples. And it says in verse 13, And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named Apostles. Now, we could spend the next 12 weeks studying everything we know about the life of each of these men individually. We aren't going to do that right now. Instead, I want you to notice one astonishing truth regarding all these men that are listed here. And that is this. That Jesus chose surprisingly ordinary apostles. The apostles Jesus chose were not who most people would have expected. He chose surprisingly ordinary apostles. Notice that Jesus is the first of all, the one that chose the apostles. It says in verse 13, he called his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. So he called them to be disciples in the first place, and now he called them to become apostles. They didn't come and apply for the job. He sovereignly selected them. And later on in his ministry, he told the apostles, you did not choose me. But I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. If you've ever gone for a job interview before, okay, and you've gone in all nervous and people have sat down with you and asked you questions, people have evaluated you based on certain criteria. Okay? If there's a job to fill for a company or an institution or an organization, they're looking for someone who can provide or fill a hole of exactly what they need. And so they make a criteria for the interviewers to use as they interview candidates. And a generic job criteria may have certain things like having a degree in a certain field or having a reputation of diligence and honesty in your life or possessing natural mental abilities or physical abilities. 
Maybe having a certain number of years' experience in a field. Or being willing to relocate or move to another city if necessary. In Jesus' day, the role of an apostle would have been a highly respected and privileged position. So you'd expect the job criteria would be pretty strict and exclusive. But then we come to Luke here, and we read who Jesus chose for the job, and the only conclusion is that it wasn't. That wasn't the criteria he used. And this seems crazy. We read who he chose, and there doesn't seem to be any requirements for experience or training or education. There didn't seem to be any requirements for any physical ability or mental ability. They didn't need to have spent any time in ministry of any kind. That's crazy. They'd be doing ministry full-time the rest of their lives, and they didn't need to have any experience. Jesus' criteria seemed to be something much simpler. Something like, do you believe in me? Check. Are you willing to follow me anywhere, even if it costs you your life? Check. Are you moldable or teachable? Check. Are you ordinary? Check. Welcome aboard. Now I'll do the rest of the work. I'll make you into the people that I need. I wonder, why would Jesus choose 12? Why 12 apostles? Why 12 and not 3 or 30 or 100 or 1,200? If Jesus had huge crowds following him, wouldn't it make more sense to recruit hundreds of apostles? Wouldn't that make it more effective? That seems to be, uh, to us, in our modern way of thinking, that would be the way to increase your influence best, right? Just goes to show how different God's ways are from ours. That he didn't need hundreds. He wanted 12. And with those 12, he would shake the world. Plus, really, with a larger crowd, if you think about it, the discipleship that he intended would not have been as fruitful or effective. Jesus really formed a small group here. With a smaller group, Jesus could focus on especially developing these 12 men. And his influence would multiply later on through these men that he chose. But I think there's also a symbolic reason for 12 apostles. What else was there 12 of in Israel? Tribes, right? There were 12 tribes that made up the nation of Israel. And I believe that Jesus, in selecting 12 apostles, was really symbolizing a new era for Israel, a new covenant. Whereas the old covenant... People of God came through 12 sons of Jacob. The New Testament people of God were built on the foundation of 12 apostles. And so God was forming a new covenant people by using some very unlikely men. Let's see who these guys are. Verse 14, it says, Simon, whom he named Peter, and Andrew his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon who was called the Zealot, and Judas the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So first of all, there was Simon, probably the best known apostle, but you might know him as Peter, 
the disciple of Jesus renamed Peter. And then Peter's brother Andrew, the other set of brothers, the sons of Zebedee, James, and John. Now, these two sets of brothers were all Galilean fishermen by trade. That's what they did for a living. It's also quite possible that Philip, Thomas, and Bartholomew were also fishermen. Okay? We don't know anything else about what they were doing, but it's probable that they were fishermen. So likely, we have seven local fishermen. And then there was the former tax collector, Levi, also known as Matthew, a despised and ostracized traitor who collected taxes for Rome. People didn't like him very much. Then there was another Simon, known as Simon the Zealot. Zealots were a radical political party that hoped to overthrow Rome one day. They were violent. And so Simon was an outlaw or a conspirator, a militant extremist of the day. Then there are two other disciples that we know next nothing about, James the son of Alphaeus and Judas the son of James, also known as Thaddeus. And then last, and you probably could say least, (laughs) was the one who became the most notorious, Judas Iscariot. We're going to come back to Judas in a minute. But if you look at this list of men, with the little we know of some of them, that we know more of others, I think that the most remarkable thing about this list of men is how unremarkable they were. Their defining feature was their ordinariness. They were uneducated, they were unsophisticated, unpopular, poor, rural, blue-collar workers. Many of them were from the dregs of society, social outcasts or misfits. Most of them were basically first-century rednecks. None of them were rabbis. None of them were teachers or scribes or priests or Pharisees, or Sadducees. None of them were military officials, or princes, or kings, or emperors, or nobles, or merchants, or politicians. None of them were wealthy anymore. Most of them weren't very highly respected by society. I believe what this tells us loud and clear is that God loves to use ordinary people fill his extraordinary purposes. God used these surprisingly ordinary men in powerful and mighty ways. This is, this is really wonderful news for us. Because aren't we pretty ordinary? We're pretty ordinary in the world's eyes. We're ordinary citizens, whether we're blue-collar or white-collar workers. Whether we're just students trying to make it through our degree program. We might not be very wealthy or very powerful or popular or famous or respected. Might not be very talented or educated. We may even feel embarrassed about who we are. Ashamed. Even worthless to an extent. Do you feel ordinary today? Most of us are. But, but God can take us in our ordinariness and gift us and equip us and empower us and send us out and work through us 
in mighty ways. It's all God's work. He wants, he loves to use ordinary people like you and like me. He may want to use you on the mission field somewhere. Maybe he wants to use you to reach out with God's love to those who are in desperate need. Maybe he wants to use you here in Canada to light some spark of revival in our country. He might want to use you to show his love in impacting some social issue, like fighting abortion or human trafficking or feeding the hungry. He may want to use you in ministry, in his church, either here or elsewhere, to help develop fully devoted followers of his. He may want to use you to reach your family or your friends, your peers with his love, bringing many people to faith through you. He's doing the work, but he's using us. Are you ready to be used? Are you willing to be used? Are you available? Imagine what would have happened if, if Jesus had hired a modern management consultant firm to help with his selection of disciples. You may have seen an email a while back that was circulated with this kind of stuff. It, it went around, and it's from an author named Tim Hansel in his book. And he says that if Jesus hired this modern management firm to help him select his disciples, they would probably respond to Jesus this way. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men that you have picked for managerial positions in your new organization. It is the staff opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have the team concept. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no qualities of leadership. The two brothers, James and John, place personal interest above company loyalty. Thomas demonstrates a questioning attitude that would tend to undermine morale. We feel that it is our duty to tell you that Matthew has been blacklisted by the Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus definitely have radical leanings, and they both registered as a high score on the manic-depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of ability and resourcefulness, meets people well, has a keen business mind, and has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. Therefore, we recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. (laughs) See, by the world's standards, only Judas really would have qualified as a respectable choice. And thus, we come to Judas. Judas Iscariot, who Luke says here in verse 16, became a traitor. Not a traitor to his country like Matthew, nor a traitor to Rome like Simon the Zealot. No, he became a traitor to Jesus, to his Lord, his Savior, his God. Now, we can rightly assume that Judas was a committed follower at first. Okay? We don't really think that way. We think of him like an infiltrator. He probably was a committed follower, but eventually Satan got control of his heart 
and he became a traitor. Does anyone else find this the most surprising choice of all? If Jesus knew that Judas would betray him, why in the world would he choose him as his apostle? Why would he do that? It just doesn't make sense. If you were looking to make some close friends today, and somehow you got a message from the future, so you knew what was going to happen, and someone told you, hey, that one guy sitting next to you, watch out, he's going to try to kill you one day. Would you make him your friend? No. You'd avoid him at all costs. You'd probably move to a different town. But Jesus welcomed this guy, knowing what was, about, what was going to happen. He welcomed him into his inner circle of friends. Here's the thing I think this tells us. In choosing Judas Iscariot, Jesus was choosing to be betrayed. In, for that matter, in choosing the other 11 apostles, he was choosing to be abandoned by them, denied by them. And in choosing this path, these men that would follow him, Jesus was choosing to die. The fact that Luke already identifies Judas as a traitor is another hint of things to come. About Only about a year and a half to two years later, Judas betrayed Jesus. Peter denied him. They all ran away. And when Jesus died, they all hid away and were petrified. And they doubted him. The disciples were disasters. They allowed Jesus to die. But even then, they didn't know that Jesus was choosing that path. He chose that path because he chose to love them. He wanted to die for them. He, because of their sin and all our sins, they all demand the death penalty. And no one could pay that penalty except the perfect Son of God. And so, Jesus went to the cross and died out of love for each one of us, for each one of his followers, for each one of his apostles, so that we who betray him could be forgiven and loved and blessed. Later, when Jesus rose from the dead, is when we really see his disciples and his apostles get transformed. Overnight, they realized what Jesus had done for them and what it meant for them, and they became bold and powerful, spirit-filled preachers and missionaries. They formed the foundation of the worldwide church, and the world's never been the same. I ask, though, are any of us today, that different from the original disciples who were made apostles? Are we that different? We already said we're pretty ordinary. But worse than that, we're all traitors 
and cowards and sinners. We've all betrayed our God. We've all sinned against him. Judas wasn't the only traitor that Jesus made a point to choose. Jesus chose me. Jesus chose me to be his disciple. If Jesus is your Lord, Jesus chose you. Judas really was a tragedy. We see that in Scripture. But the other traitors that Jesus chose display his victory. In a way, we've all undeservedly been chosen out of the crowd. We don't deserve to be, and that's grace. Today, Jesus may be calling you for the first time. And I'd encourage you, heed the call. Your life will never be the same. Believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins. Follow him with your life. And he says he'll do the rest. He'll make you into the person he wants. For the rest of us, not a relish in his grace, that he would choose traitors like us to be his followers. Jesus took unqualified men made them qualified to carry on his work. And this is when that process began. But how did Jesus go about preparing them for the days that would come? Well, that's the story of the rest of the book, really. We see it many different ways that he taught them and mentored them and corrected them when they were wrong and and guided them, and, and he built them into the men he needed. Perhaps most important thing he did for them, I believe, was to lead by example. They ended up the most qualified to carry on Jesus' work because they had seen Jesus' work. We're going to see this point in the last few verses today, starting in verse 17, and I put it this way, that Jesus exemplified powerful service for his apostles. Jesus exemplified what he wanted the apostles to later go and do. Jesus exemplified powerful service for his apostles. See him do this in verse 17. It says, And Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon. In other words, they came from everywhere. And they came to hear him and be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. This seemed, at first glance, to be a pretty generic summary of what Jesus' ministry was like to this point. We've already seen this a number of times. People came from all over to hear him teach and be healed by him. But I think Luke put this summary here on purpose, showing what he was doing with his apostles. You see in verse 17, it specifically says, And he came down from the mountain with them. With them. And stood on a level place with the crowd surrounding him. He was deliberately ministering to people and serving them in the midst of his apostles. Later on, Peter, one of these apostles, wrote, 
We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. They watched Jesus day in and day out, and so became like him in service. People saw Peter and John boldly ministering after Jesus' ascension. And in Acts 14, it says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. And what was their one qualification? And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. They weren't, it doesn't say that they were trained by him or taught by him. They had been with him. I think the same goes for us. The more we spend time with Jesus, studying him, observing him, listening to him, learning from him, the more we become like him in the way we serve others. Now, I think there's a secret to why God chooses such ordinary people for his purposes. Why does he do this? I think it's because... In the context of ordinariness, God's power is displayed most powerfully. Great power is displayed when we see God using obviously unpowerful people. When he uses fishermen and carpenters, and shepherds, and prostitutes, and tax collectors, and zealots, and lepers, and sinners for his glory. We go, wow. When he transforms those who are weak to be strong, we go, wow. When we see Almighty God come in flesh as a human baby, We see that same all-powerful God dying on a cross. Wow. John MacArthur says this, Christ's choice of apostles testifies to the fact that God can use the unworthy and the unqualified. He can use nobodies. They turned the world upside down, these 12. It was not because they had extraordinary talents, unusual intellectual abilities, powerful political influence, or some special social status. They turned the world upside down because God worked in them to do it. God chooses the humble, the lowly, the meek, and the weak so that there's never any question about the source of power when their lives change the world. It's not the man It's the truth of God and the power of God in the man. His power is made perfect in weakness. Even in our weakness, his power can be displayed. In this story, we see the incredible power that was displayed through Jesus' ministry. Jesus did supernatural things like these so often that it almost comes across in a ho-hum way. Right? Another ordinary day for Jesus, extraordinary for everyone else. No one in history could do the things that Jesus did every day. It says in verse 18, 
and those who came to hear him to be healed of their diseases, and those who were troubled and un- with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Jesus' apostles were eyewitnesses of this power. And it changed them forever. The fact that you and I are sitting here today as a church that worships Jesus Christ is because God worked through these surprisingly ordinary apostles. The church is a legacy of theirs. God used them to build it up. Ephesians 2.20 says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. And don't get me wrong, these men's lives were not very glamorous after Jesus left them. Not at all. In fact, they were all persecuted and hated, and most were ultimately martyred. Killed for what they stood for. But, God rewarded them greatly. God rewarded them greatly for their willingness to be changed and used by him. Revelation 21 describes the heavenly city of the New Jerusalem coming down from heaven. And it says this, And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. What an honor. They formed the foundation of the church and then were honored as the foundation of heaven. It's quite the testimony of what God's extraordinary power can do through ordinary people when our foundation is on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know who we are. You know our weaknesses and our, our struggles, our difficulties. You know how experienced we are, how educated we are, how trained we are. And and God, you know, really, in the world's eyes, how useless we are. But we thank you for your grace that you choose to use people like us. We praise you for that, God. We pray today that your spirit would be empowering us as your ambassadors in this world around us, that we would live for your glory, in your strength, and for in your power. And that is the only way we know that we have the strength for day to day, is through you. So we pray that you would empower us through your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.